living in the light. I know that uh, each of us here has been walking with the Lord for some years. And, and we understand living in the light. I, I want to look at, we're going to take some, we're going to go down some roads this morning. Looking here in Ephesians chapter 5, we're, we're going to go through verses 8 through 14 uh, about living as light. I, I, I struggled with, when I put, made a title for this message, you guys know I like, to put, I like to title the messages. It was living in the light or living as light because that's what Paul says here. He says, you are light in the Lord. And he uh, has been going down. When we looked at the first seven verses here, we went through verses three through seven, particularly last week. We looked at Paul was reaching out to the Ephesian church and warning them about the dangers of their culture. Warning them not to go back to the old ways. We've looked at that a lot. Uh, He was talking about porneia, sexual immorality, specifically the the, filthiness, covetousness. He goes so far as to say that the covetous person is an idolater. We looked at that too. And I just think it's fascinating because I don't think in, in my own thinking, which doesn't count for much, of a covetous person as somebody who's into idolatry. But what he's saying is that thing that you want, that thing that you are embracing, that thing that perhaps you have desire rising up within you towards can become your God. It can become lowercase g, obviously, but it can become that thing which supplants simple faith in Christ. And so we've looked at that quite a bit. And as we have been sort of drilling down on what it is to live in a godless culture, it doesn't take much to look around and to see that it's the same thing. Satan is peddling the same lies. He's appealing to the same base nature that man has. And uh, as we look around at this this morning, uh, it's remarkable how many things overlay in our culture now what they were faced with then. So I want to begin by, I want to back up a little bit and and look at verses 6 and 7. Again, context is everything. Uh, After warning the people about falling into the old ways and, and about being drawn in to by their culture, he says, let no one deceive you in verse six with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Now, notice he says, he says, you and them. Let no one deceive you. Don't be partakers with them. So he's making a very clear distinction between people who are in the world, the sons of disobedience, and the people of God there in Ephesus. He's saying, don't be drawn in by their deceptive, their seductive, their hollow words. Uh, the Ephesian Christians back then, they were the minority in their culture. They, I mean, big, big city, quarter million plus. And a, a number of house churches had sprung up from the work that Paul did when he spent three years there earlier on and uh, that sexual sin was the accepted norm of their culture, of their day. It was, I mean, we talked about that. In in that particular region, especially there in Ephesus with the Temple of Diana and all of the other pagan temples, the, the, the Greek and Roman pantheons of gods, they had gods for everything, and a lot of them were associated with fertility. And as such, they promoted deviant sexual practices with the people. And it wasn't just okay, it was endorsed. And and, and folks, it's the same today. You you turn on television and now it seems like, and we just don't even watch network television at all anymore, but uh, I've, I've looked and seen, you know, where an ad will come on and, and it's like they had the token homosexual in every program. And now Disney, I saw, was putting forth a transgendered child 
in, in a, a, something that they're producing right now. Disney has gone totally off the rails. And you look around and see that sexual immorality is not just accepted in our culture, it's promoted. And it's promoted in spades. That's what Paul was dealing with then. We, we've talked before, remember when we looked in Jeremiah 20, uh, 19 and 20, um, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 11 and 12, where uh, Jeremiah was talking about the condition that Israel was in back in the Old Testament. And, and we could see clearly that, again, different players, same lie, same thing. These are things that have repeated themselves through history because the God of this world is still ruling this world and he knows his days are limited. I'm shocked when I look out these days and I see that no longer is he hiding in a corner, but he's out in the open and promoting this stuff in accelerating ways, in, in, in ways that are, are, are mind-boggling when you check out the news or you see what's going on, in, especially like in Portland, but even in our own community, you see that there are things that are going on that are just absolutely, they're not just neutral, they're completely against God. Back then, they had false teachers. They taught that sexual sins didn't affect the spiritual life. Same today. Look at major denominations that have embraced. And part of their creed now is embracing and endorsing homosexuality. It is, it's no longer uh, sin for a couple to live together. It's no longer sin for people to be with people of the same sex. It's no longer sin. And it's coming, folks, to where people can be a part, and, and it's here. People can actually be a part of the ministry. I use the term loosely, and part of a, the leadership of a church. Again, I use the term loosely because I don't believe that those are organizations that are any longer churches in the biblical sense of the word. They might be in the cultural sense of the word, but not the biblical sense of the word. So that's the atmosphere that Paul is speaking into here in the first century, and here we are 20 centuries later, dealing with the same thing. When he talks about uh, the sons of disobedience, it's the second time in this letter that he's brought that up. He's used that term. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we read this. He says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. When he talks about the prince of the power of the air, that's a title for Satan based on the realm of activity that he possesses in this fallen world. And he talks about the prince of the power of the air. It's the medium in which he and his demonic forces operate. So when he's referring to the sons of disobedience, he's talking about dead men walking. And folks, there are people in, in my life, and I assume in yours, that are dead men, dead women walking. Because that's the former manner of life for us as believers. It's the present manner of life for them. I'm going to read through today's text, and then we're going to, we're going to take a side trip <laughs> into the book of Romans. Uh, that I just, uh, I, again, I, I got excited when I was seeing th some things and I thought, Lord, you're just, this is just, you're giving me fresh understanding on some passages that I've looked at, known, taught for years. Uh, so it, verses 8 through 14, let's read through them together. Uh, he says in verse 8, for you were once darkness. Now, he doesn't say in darkness, even though we were. He says you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake. You who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. 
A lot of stuff about light and dark here, light and darkness. So the question then in my mind is, is what is light and darkness as relates to the Bible? As, how are they defined? Uh, and the answer, I think, we find in the pages of Scripture itself that they're both terms, they're, they're terms that are used to describe both the natural and the spiritual or the supernatural realms. These have definitions and they have roots in both. So the first thing I want to look at is light and darkness are earthly terms, natural terms, the natural world. Go back to creation. Again, the principle of first mention comes into play here. And what that means, folks, is that when you study the Bible, the first time something is mentioned, there is very often most often, something significant about it. We're talking about light and darkness having roots in the physical and the spiritual realm. First mention here is, is, is worth three verses into the Bible. In Genesis 1, 3 through 5, uh, it says, Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. There are those terms all together. God called the light day, and he called, and the darkness he called night. Hold on to that, because that, that comes forward in significant ways. So the evening and the morning were the first day. So, all right, Pastor John, you've talked about God saying, let there be light, and there was light. So, there's light. But I want you to understand something about this. Yes, physical light came into being at that time. God's creating here. But Genesis tells us that light and day and night existed before the sun and the moon were created on the fourth day. This is the first day. So what that shows us is that light is more than a physical substance. It also has a supernatural aspect. All right? And we're going to see that proved out as we move through this. this is, like I said, this was fascinating to me as I started searching out the scripture and saying, Lord, how does this all fit together? So the second thing that we see is, is light and darkness are kingdom terms. And uh, when we talk about kingdom terms, we're talking about supernatural beyond the natural. They're spiritual terms. And in Matthew chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 9, where Isaiah 700 years before Christ prophesied that the Christ would come and he would come from Galilee. And Matthew is essentially quoting that as he is introducing Jesus into the, the, the narrative there in the Gospel of Matthew. He says in, in chapter 4, verse 15, he says, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by way of the sea, by, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness, there's that term, have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region of the shadow of death, or in great darkness is how that's actually more accurately rendered, light has dawned. So Matthew is not talking about the substance of physical light here. He's talking about the spiritual aspect, light and darkness. And, and they're synonymous with good and evil. They're, they're synonymous with life and death. They're synonymous with the light in men's souls and the darkness in men's souls. So when he's talking about light and darkness here, he's talking about more than day or night in the physical sense. Now, going forward, in, in your, if you want to turn with me to, to John chapter 9, we're going to spend a lot of time in the Gospel of John here. Uh, well, sometime. Uh, we're going to go from 9 to 13. We see here in John chapter 9, it opens up with Jesus and his guys are walking along and they see this beggar, this, this guy off to the side and he was a guy that was blind from birth, okay? Uh, and, and his guys ask him, a very innocent and honest question. They say, who sinned? This guy or his parents? That he would be born blind because in those days they thought, they believed that that sin was associated with physical illness. And sometimes it is, even today. But you can't make a general statement. It's, it's not a generality that we can do with that. So when he says, who sinned? When they say, who sinned? He or his parents, they're honestly asking, 
because they even believed that if the parents sinned and the mother was pregnant, that that could affect the baby in the womb. And, and so that was their understanding in that day. Uh, Jesus, essentially, he says, neither one. This guy's blind that the works of God should be revealed in him. In verse 4, he says something really interesting. He says, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming. When no one can work, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Interesting. Jesus often performs signs in the natural to illuminate, to bring light to something in the spiritual, something in the supernatural. This man had been in physical darkness all of his life. Now, when Jesus talks about, when he says, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, that's a reference to his earthly ministry. He's saying, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. I am the source of light. I won't always be because darkness is coming. The night is coming. Understand that. The, refer- the night here is a reference to the cross. It's a reference to the work that he would do when his earthly ministry was finished and then he would go to the cross and he would atone for sin, perform the act of redemption for you and I, and then rise from the dead on the third day. So fast forwarding from that, let's go to chapter 13 of the Gospel of John. And I want to trace this out a little bit further. And you'll see that this fits perfectly with what Jesus has said in John chapter 9. In chapter 13, uh, verses 26 and 27, this is after Jesus had washed his disciples' feet. They're in the upper room. The night before, Jesus is getting ready at, at the end of chapter 14. He says, come, let us go from here. And they go out into the night. He gets arrested, and then everything gets it rolling into high gear. So this is right on the verge of his being uh, taken and tried and crucified. So it says in verse 26 of John 13, that Jesus answered, uh, he's talking about Judas being the one who's about to betray him. He says, Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread that when I have dipped it, and having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, prophesying, the one who dips with me will be the one who betrays me. Now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered into him, into Judas, And Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly, all right? So Judas is just now, Satan's filled his heart, and and dropping down to verse 30 here, he says, it says, having received the piece of bread, he went out immediately, here's the significant thing, and it was night. Jesus' public ministry was drawing rapidly to a close. The night that Jesus talked about in chapter 9 was upon them. I don't think the reference to night here in, in verse 30 is merely to tell us what time of day it was. But look at what Jesus says next. Verse 31, So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. In other words, things are now, they've shifted into high gear. He is accelerating towards the cross. Little children, I'll be with you a little while longer. You seek me, and as I said to the Jews where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you. So when Jesus is saying the Son of Man is glorified, the Son of Man and God are glorified in each other, we need to understand that God the Father is glorifying God the Son, and God the Son is glorifying God the Father. And the glory of that night was a triumph of a salvation that they had plotted together with the Holy Spirit from before the world began, from eternity past. So we see this glorification going on. Jesus' public ministry was concluded. The day spoken of in John chapter 9 had given way to the to, to night, to the darkness of this hour. However, something that's really important 
the Gospel of John begins with the words in John 1, 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. All right? This looks like, on the surface, it looks like a defeat. It's not. So going down and looking at Jesus' arrest at Gethsemane, in Luke 22, you can hold your place in John. We're going to be there a little bit more. Uh, Jesus says to the religious leaders, when I was with you daily in the temple, you didn't try to seize me, but this is your hour. And the power of what? Darkness. We see these two themes, light and darkness, playing all the way through, and they have very little to do with what time of day it is. The point is they had worked together for three years. He had worked with his men for three years. And now no one but Jesus could accomplish the work that was before him, the work of our redemption. So Jesus says, guys, you can't come with me. No, it's, you, you're not part of this. I've concluded the work. I, I've done the work that I could in the day. And now the night is here. I want you to also note something here. He doesn't do it in spite of the darkness. He does it with the unwitting, God-appointed help of the darkness. This is all part of God's divine plan. Only Jesus could destroy the darkness by being enveloped by darkness. Only Jesus could abolish death by being swallowed up by death. The same way that Jonah was with the fish. Only Jesus could disarm Satan by surrendering to Satan's servants. In John 13, 36, this is important. Further down in John 13, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him and says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. But you will, you shall follow me afterward. In other words, you have been with me all this time, this three, three and a half years, whatever it was, up until now, now the work that I have to do is something that only I can do. However, there's still work for you to do. You will follow me afterwards. He's making a reference to the resurrection and when they would rejoin him and they would be commissioned to go out into the world as light. While Jesus' men couldn't follow him to Calvary, they would find their purpose afterwards in the power of the resurrection also in the fellowship of his sufferings the cross was a fulfillment of genesis 3:15 when god is speaking to the servant as he is cursing humanity as the curse is coming upon mankind he says i'll put enmity hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed he jesus prophetically shall bruise your head that's a lethal wound and you, the serpent, shall bruise his heel, a non-lethal wound. Yes, Satan wanted to get Jesus on that cross. He wanted to get him out of there. He wanted to get that person who was speaking light and life to all men. He wanted to get him done. And so what looked like a victory for Satan was actually a victory for God. What looked like extinguishing the light was actually releasing the light to all men. Fascinating. I love the way this plays out. What happened there on the cross would unwind all of the damage done to humanity through the fall. The point in this is through the cross, Jesus accomplished what no one else could as he was dispelling darkness, paying for sin, absorbing wrath, obliterating death, disarming Satan, fulfilling all righteousness and removing condemnation. That's the victory of the cross. And it looked dark, but it wasn't. This is why he came into the world. In a sense, Jesus' brightest moment is the darkest night. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, listen to this. When Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is teaching his men, it says he, he, went, he sat down and he began to teach his disciples. And he goes through the Beatitudes. You know, I love that passage, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. After he speaks the Beatitudes, 
he says something very interesting to his men. Now, he has made the claim that he is the light of the world, and he would be the light of the world as long as he is in the world. Remember, we looked at that in John chapter 9. In Matthew 5, verse 14, he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to everyone who is in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Fascinating. All of that leads up to (laughs) teaching through today's text. But folks, we've got to understand light and darkness from a biblical standpoint. We've got to understand that we are light and there is dark out there. We came from dark and now we're light and we live in a world that is dark. And we are the bright spot. And as the world gets darker, by default, our light shines brighter. At least it should. In Ephesians 5.8, he says, For you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. In other words, walk this out. We've talked about that. That word walk, Paul uses that verb. It denotes action. He says, walk it out. Be light. This is a contrast to the dark and the light Uh, that's as old as Genesis 1 that we looked at. It's commonly, as I mentioned, associated with evil versus good. And that's the, the way that Paul uses it in this context because he's talking about, remember, he's saying, look, don't get caught up in all that garbage that's out there in your culture. Don't go back to the old ways. You're a new creation. Put off the old man. Put on the new man. Walk as light in a dark culture, in a dark world. Verse 9, he says, for the, in, in parentheses, he says, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. This parentheses, what it is, it's a side remark in the middle of another thought. He's talking about light and dark, and he takes a moment to define what does light look like? When he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, the full description is, of course, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, where he, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gent- faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Yet here, light is used as a metaphor for goodness, righteousness, and truth. Living as light is demonstrated in our lives in all that is good, all that is right, all that is true. That's how the Holy Spirit works through us and in us as we deal in this world. We looked at the communicable attributes of God a couple of weeks ago Each of these is rooted in God himself. We talked about the goodness of God. We talked about the righteousness of God. We talked about the fact that God is always true. He can't lie. These are things that we put on that are born in the heart of God, in the person of God, the character and the nature of God himself. He contrasts here darkness and light. In this case, fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, the sons of disobedience, darkness. In verse 6, he says, you're children of light, so live like children of light. That's his point. Verse 10, he says, finding out, uh, literally finding out, the word finding out is interesting, the Greek word, it it literally means to prove, and, and it's rendered that way in some translations. The English Standard Version says to discern What is acceptable to the Lord? Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord or to prove or to discern. I like the word to prove. What it means is that you test. And that's what this word means is that you test it. That doesn't mean that you go out and sin and then not sin and try to figure out which one's better. That's silliness. But this is the same Greek word as is in Romans 12 too, where he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove What is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? Here's a quote I came across 
that nails it. Uh, this is, by, uh, this is a, a 19th century British theologian named Charles Ellicott. Uh, I read Ellicott's stuff sometimes. He gets real, real wordy and he, he gets into some very, very detailed stuff. So sometimes I feel like I get bogged down. But this is something that I thought was really good in, in, as I was studying. Uh, this is what he talks about when he says to prove. He says to prove is to try, in each case, by the full light of God, what is according to his will. It is a work partly of thought, partly of practical experience, and it always implies a searching examination of heart and action by the measure of God's word. Isn't that good? That's what he means when he says to prove what is the, what is the will of God. Verse 11, he says, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. All right, this is a bit of a tricky one because this is one of those commonly misinterpreted passages of the Bible, and I, I want to clear it up. We can look at it in a couple of ways, but this is in contrast to verse 9 where he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. He's saying, don't have any fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. So you've got the fruit of the Spirit on this side and the unfruitful works of, the, of darkness on this side. And he's saying, don't have any, there's no mixture here. You can't, they don't, they don't, you can't walk into a dark room, turn on the light and see the darkness flee to half the room. It doesn't, no, they do not coexist. There's either light or there's dark. That's why he's saying you're light in the Lord. Don't live dark because you can't, that can't happen at the same time. And as Christians, you try to live that way. Either your life, your, your walk is compromised or you are struggling big time. There's no middle ground here. You're either walking in light, you are walking as light, or you are walking in the dark. So he says, don't have any fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but expose them. Two things here. When he talks about no fellowship, you you hear of companies that have, I, I worked for a company in Colorado when we would drug test people. Uh, and it was called the zero tolerance policy. You do the test, you know, random tests, you know, and I would be the guy that had to <laughs> tell them, yeah, it's your turn. And, and we had a zero tolerance policy. And there were times where I had to dismiss people. I had to, I had to fire people because they tested positive. Zero tolerance. What he's talking about here, you don't have anything to do with the unfruitful works of darkness. Have a zero tolerance policy towards darkness. No fellowship, don't participate with, don't be in partnership with. These are assumed, right? The point that he's making here is don't engage at any level. Do you know what tacit approval is? I worked in, in the 80s, I worked for a big uh, commercial sign company and they had sheet metal benders and electricians and plastic. I, I managed their plastic department and made the faces for these big signs like Macy's and all that. And I remember the, the manager, the shop manager, was the guy that um, I had a real problem with because he just was dark. And he was. He was dark. It started at 7 o'clock, but you were expected to be there at a quarter till. And what all of the guys in the shop, there were probably 20 guys working in this big building uh, in Chico, California, and all the guys would go up to his workstation. They'd stand around and jaw at his workstation until 7 o'clock. Well, when I first started working there, I, I went up there, and all these guys would do is sit there and talk about their conquests and about the most impure, improper, immoral stuff. I mean, a lot of these guys are married, and they're bragging it up. I separated after just a couple of days. And my shop manager didn't like me after that, but I separated from that because I didn't want to give tacit approval. In other words, just by being there and not saying anything, I could be perceived as endorsing that activity. Careful, folks. We're told in the book of James that friendship with the world is hostility. Towards Christ. Enmity. That's what enmity means. Hostility. 
that, that you can't mix the two. Any more than you can mix light and darkness in a physical, tangible way, you can't mix light and darkness in a spiritual way. We're called to holiness. We're called to purity. We're called to live lives in the light. And living in the light is not only a safe place to be, it's the most glorious place to live. I love walking with the Lord. I love walking in the light. I love being committed to him and saying, Lord, search my heart. See, as we're told in the Psalms, see if there's any wicked way in me. Bring it to the light. Let me deal with it with you in transparency and truth. So he says, don't have any fellowship. Uh, Don't engage, not at any level. Not even ha, ha, ha to a joke. It's not funny. The other thing he says is to expose them. Expose the unfruitful works of darkness. What do you mean? And this is where it gets a little dicey because I've heard people misapply and uh, misinterpret this passage as though we are now appointed to go around and zap everybody with our Holy Ghost gun when we see somebody sin. That's not his point. We have to leave room for the Holy Spirit to be the Holy Spirit. However, there is the witness of the Holy Spirit. Jesus talks about it in John chapter 16. He'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. One of the three things he says is primary to the work and the ministry of the Spirit. That's true. And so, especially when I'm dealing with people in the world, (laughs) I mean, unless it's something that is so blatant that I have to speak up, they're just being faithful to their nature. And that particular sin is not going to be what sends them to hell. The sin of not coming, the sin of not recognizing that Christ died for them is the one that will. There are times where I hold my peace. I'm not going to cast my pearls before swine. There are times where I'm going to trust the Lord. This, I'll tell you what, folks, this is an area where you really need to discern. How do you respond to darkness? There are times where we pull back, but there are also times when we expose those in a rather forthright way. And I'm not saying that that doesn't come into play because the witness of men is, is it's there in God's word as well as the witness of God's spirit. In James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, James says, Brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So yes, there is a place where we trust the Holy Spirit to be the Holy Spirit to convict concerning sin. There is also a place where, and I, I, I mentioned last week, I, this doesn't happen like automatically and, and unless it's something that really needs to be addressed right this second. But this is something that I will pray for. It's like, Lord, do you want me to be the one that talks to them? Do you want me to be the one that tracks them down and says, look, you need to turn. And I've done it before. And it's usually not pleasant. Very often, I mean, <laughs> God's word is clear. He says, you know, very often they'll turn and rend you. They'll, just, they'll, they'll take a shot at you. You will become the enemy. You'll, because you're the, the messenger, they'll assassinate the messenger or do what they can. So got to be careful on this. Yes, he says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness and expose them. Very often, just the fact that I am light will expose the darkness. Sometimes I don't have to say a word. Very often, I don't have to say a word. Something I think is a little silly is, you know, when the pastor walks in the room, the wine glass goes behind the back kind of thing. You know, and it's like, you know what? That should be any Christian. If you have a problem with that, if all of a sudden, you know, it's like, and I'm not trying to make a doctrine about that. I'm just saying that it shouldn't just be the pastor. If there's a consciousness of sin, if there's a consciousness of, and, and it's like, you know what? And I understand too, personal liberty, that what people do at home is what people do at home. And I have no issue with that. My point is, is that we need to be careful 
how we address this particular point that he makes. Enough said on that. Verse 12, For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. The point here, he says, essentially, understand the dangers. And and, and again, in context, he's talking about sexual immorality, but spare the details. We don't need to know all of the, you know, we don't need the play-by-play on sexual sin. That's, that's improper. You, you, you hear about someone that's raped. You don't want to hear about the detail. It's just like, no, that's not where it's at. He, he's saying, look, don't even speak of those things which are done by them in secret. Understand the danger. Understand the perils of immorality. Understand the perils of sin. But no, don't, don't go there. Don't pull it out and, and, and air someone's dirty laundry or your own. Verse 13, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light for whatever makes manifest is light. This is an interesting passage. It's an interesting verse. A little bit difficult to understand, but pretty straightforward. Uh, He's saying everything which is illuminated becomes light. Uh, what he intends here is that the light is in itself, it has a cleansing quality. It's not just a condemning thing. It's not just shine the light on darkness, but there's also a place where it cleanses. The light can cleanse. We'll look at that as we go here. He says, therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light in verse 14. As we look at this, this is probably the preponderance of the the things I've read and and all. This is likely part of an early Christian hymn, right? And so we get to get, we get like one line from a first century worship song, which I think is really cool. Paul's quoting it here. He's assuming that his readers know it. It does tie back to the scripture, In Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 and 2, where Isaiah writes, Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people, but the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you, prophetically looking towards the days in which Paul wrote, and the days within which we live. So so as we wrap this up by application, there are three things about living as light that I want to take out of this. The first is light produces good fruit, the fruit of goodness. What this is, it's it's a generosity of spirit. This is a person who wants to do good. This is a person who wants to live in the light, who wants... The, the marks of their life to be that which Christ has put there, the fruit of goodness. It's a generous person. This is a person who people want to be around, who people look at as living in, in, in personal holiness. Also the fruit of righteousness. It's part of the good fruit. Uh, in context here, this is a person who is living a morally upright life. This is a person that, according to James chapter 1, verse 27, he says, herein is pure and undefiled religion, helping widows and orphans, and keeping, this is the one who keeps oneself unstained by the world. These are stains that can be hard to wash out. God forgives. But when it comes to immorality, when it comes to that, yes, better to just stay clear, to live in righteousness, to live in light, the fruit of righteousness, morally upright, unstained, living for Christ. Also looking at the light, uh, producing good fruit, the fruit of truth. These are all right here from this passage. This is not just an intellectual truth that we're talking about here. It's not something that we just grasp with our minds. It's moral truth. 
it's not something just to be known, but something to be done. To live in truth. To live a life that is that I look the same here as I do at home. That I my behavior is the same out in public as it is in my in my study, in my own home, in my car. I don't have a double-minded life. I have a life that is aligned with truth. James says, don't let the the double-minded man expect that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's unstable in all of his ways. He's not living in truth. But here, living according to God's word, according to God's spirit, allowing truth to be worked. And these are things that, folks, we are all growing in. These are not things that we've all arrived at. These are things, as I mentioned before in a previous study, that are a response to the grace that we've been shown. They are never a means towards attaining it. So we can't get bogged down on that. Uh, Understand, these are things that as we grow, as the Lord touches our hearts, as he is cleansing us from the inside out, these are areas within which we grow in goodness and in righteousness and truth. And the fruit of that. Second thing we look at here is light enables us to discern. We discern between that which is well-pleasing and that which is not pleasing to God. It's in holding our lives up to the light of Christ that our motives and our actions are proved are tested. He says to be to prove those things, to prove his will. And so as we do that, the light, living in light, enables us to discern, that we're able to discern good from evil. We're able to discern right from wrong. We're able to discern light from darkness in the world around us. And we have nothing to do with the unfruitful deeds of darkness. The third thing is the light exposes that which is evil. The best way to deal with evil is you drag it into the light. And sometimes you got to drag it. It's the best way. As long as things are done in secret and they're hidden, I'll tell you what, you want to have your life dominated by sin? Hold on to secret sin. Don't drag it into the light. Don't get right with the Lord on it. Light exposes that which is evil. That's why so often the testimony of young Christians is all of a sudden I just, I was just really uncomfortable living that way. I was just really uncomfortable living with my girlfriend. I was really uncomfortable when all the guys at work were talking about all of this garbage, foul mouth stuff. It's because the light is exposing evil. And that's an automatic thing. The witness of the Holy Spirit in us. That's why you cringe when you hear certain things. You distance when you observe certain things. It's why you react. It's because the light of Christ in you is responding to an immoral, impure, sinful world around you. That's a good thing. Yeah, we don't want to fall into the, the, you guys have heard me say before, the white hat, black hat thing. It's where, well, I've got a white hat and the world has a black hat. And so therefore I'm, you know, better somehow. Because we got to walk in the reality that if it's not for the grace of God resting on our lives, that we've all got black hats. And then it's his work. It's his light. It's not our light. It's his and that he shares his holiness. He shares those things with us as we imitate him. The best way to cleanse the depths of our own hearts as well as the world around us is to expose them to the light of Christ. Wrapping up here, just looking at... uh, in second service, I'll use and I'll go into a, a salvation message, but I'm not too concerned about that here. Um, <clears throat> is looking at light and darkness. Uh, 
In the most famous passage, arguably in all of God's word, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Going on from there, for God didn't send his his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him, verse 18, is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. That's why Jesus told the woman caught in the act of adultery, neither do I condemn you. He knew she was already condemned. He says, go leave your life of sin. But those guys with the rocks, they're all gone. I'm not here to condemn you either. I'm here to save you. He who believes in him is is not condemned, but he who doesn't believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And listen to this. This is, this is his point in all of this. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be, there's that word again, exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done or they have been wrought in God. Isn't that good? I love that passage. Folks, light and darkness is a theme that runs through the word of God. As we've seen from the very early pages, the early verses of the book of Genesis, the first thing God created. Before he created the sun and the moon, I think that's remarkable. He, he's, you know, here's light and dark. Here's day and night. Oh, now let me create these heavenly bodies that produce light. Yes, there is a physical substance to light. We call it photons. <laughs> but the light we're talking about here is the light of God shining into men's and women's souls through the work of the cross. When Jesus, at his darkest hour, triumphed over death, triumphed over sin, triumphed over darkness, and brought us to the light. That's awesome. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your word. I love the way your your word just links together all the way across from Genesis forward as we're looking this morning. And, And Lord, Give us the ability, give us the desire, give us the want to, to be walking as light in a dark and darkening world. Lord, use us as your instruments. Lord, give us those hearts that die to self, that put on Christ. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the work that you're doing in each of us. We, we pray, Father, take our hearts, make them new, bring your light, cast out the darkness. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship the Lord.